Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. A couple of interesting events led to this particular conversation. I had coffee with a dear friend, and towards the end of our conversation, she asked if I would talk about the Book of Esther, but with an emphasis on Vashti. You know, the queen who refused to show up wearing her crown at her husband's drinking party. I always thought Vashti was quite bold. But during this particular coffee date, I started hearing my friend talk about all the ways she had heard pastors talk about Vashti, and I was appalled. But this conversation did motivate me to go home where a brand new commentary on the books of Ruth and Esther was sitting. So I checked out the comments on Vashti. Yes, there were lots of them. Lots of work to read the work historically. And then I read through Ruth, and I knew I had to talk to the author. So this week, sitting with me at the podcast table is Dr. Marion Taylor, who is a professor of Old Testament at Wycliffe College in Toronto. I had so much fun talking with her. She has spent over 20 years finding the forgotten female interpreters of the Bible, which is a remarkable thing, because if you do any basic history of biblical interpretation— There just aren't any women featured. And so by inference, you assume women haven't been doing biblical interpretation and that it must have taken the feminist scholars of the modern age to push their way into the field. But that's just not so. So how fun is it to talk to another female scholar about how women of the Bible are understood? And Vashti? Yeah, we will get to her, but you'll have to wait until next week. Let's start with why Dr. Taylor ended up doing biblical interpretation. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. So I was born in Toronto and uh, into a Christian family. We went to a small Presbyterian church. I'm one of four children. And my mother died when I was 13. So we were 15, 13, 7, and 1. And I think that had a huge impact on my life uh, because the three the three oldest were girls and we had to step up and become parents to my brother and also cook and bottle washer at home. So I, I had a very unusual adolescence. I grew up immediately. And uh, so that has had an impact on my life. Hmm. And And even now, like I have three children of my own, but the literature on motherless mothers and motherless daughters has been very helpful for me because that's given me a lot of personal insight into who I am and how I react to things. So that, that incident in my life has had a huge impact on my life. I went to the University of Toronto and my first course in my first year of university, one of them was uh, in Near and Middle Eastern Studies, and it was a study a course on Old Testament. And the professor was 
on the spectrum of left. And his intention was that all these keen Christian kids in the class would lose their faith like he did. So that course impacted me hugely because it raised so many questions for me. I went back to the church. They said, you shouldn't be taking that course, but I already had the questions. And so that took, that began my journey of struggle between faith and criticism. And in the margin of one of the papers I wrote for that course, I said, I really, the paper was on comparing Hebrew proverbs and Egyptian proverbs. And I said, I really couldn't do it because they didn't know the original languages. And the guy put in the margin, why don't you learn? And I thought, okay, I will. (laughs) And so then I learned Greek and Hebrew and lots of other fun things. And I, so out of that very negative experience, that established sort of the path of my life. And so I went on and did a master's degree in Near Eastern Studies. Then I thought, oh, I need to study theology. So I started my master's in theology and on and on the story goes. So, and in all my journey was really trying to figure things out. Yeah. Uh, I had lots and lots of questions and I couldn't find very many people to answer those questions. And I, I hadn't come from an academic family at all. My father was a carpenter. Nobody had gone to university. And so it, I, my life path was one without mentors and without a straight path. Hmm. I kind of zigzagged my way into this. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah. then eventually I landed at Yale University where to do my PhD and I had Brevard Childs as my mentor. And my doctoral thesis was on the old Princetonians and how they studied Old Testament from 1812 to 1929. It was the old Princeton school. And that was a very helpful dissertation for me. I was the first person to really go into the archives. Well, I didn't go in myself because I wasn't allowed to, but they brought brown paper bags of tied with string to my desk every day. Uh, The old Princetonians, there weren't very many of these men, but they were obsessive and they kept notes of everything. Their class notes, uh, lecture notes, copies of the students' notes on their lectures, sermons. And so that was a very helpful part of my journey because I had the opportunity of reading what some of the greatest minds in the 19th century reformed thinkers, uh, how they reacted to German higher criticism. And I realized then my questions were the same (laughs) and I wasn't alone. Um, So that was a really significant part of my journey. And then the job at Wycliffe College in Toronto came open. I wasn't quite finished my dissertation, but I applied for the job and I got the job. And uh, I was married at that point. I mean, I'm still married at that to this uh, to my husband Glenn. But uh, we came to Toronto and uh, have been here ever since. So I, you know, I started in Toronto and I and I'm full circle back which was wonderful for us because my family was here and Glenn's family, uh, his grandparents had been in Toronto too. So coming back to Toronto was a good fit for both of us. 
You mentioned two things in particular that really strike me as things that are that commonly push people away from faith and push people away from God. One is the death of a parent and mm. that happening at such a young age. It's like where where do you go with such intense emotions and the the roughness of having to grow up so quickly. And then number two, the the going to college with someone who wants to prove to you that religion is something you shouldn't believe in. And right. it strikes me as someone who you said who grew up without mentors that you persevered through two really challenging things to get to a point where you can be a different kind of leader in a college environment. That is really beautiful. Yeah, I think I come from a family with a number, quite a few resilient people in it. And I and I think, I mean, my own personal pain, I think I went inside and it, I became very independent. I don't need anyone, which is very typical of that case. Because in those years, uh, children, now we handle death and children differently. We talk to kids about death. No one talked to us. Nobody. My father, I think, was hardly coping. And so we just, we went into the survival mode. And I, and I knew it was the right thing to do. Like we stepped up to the plate to survive and thrive. And we did. And so I, I think I have yeah, a real sense of who I am and what I want to do in life and, uh, and a, an ability to carry on when things are hard. Hmm. So, you know, we're all broken healers, right? Wounded healers. And I, and I certainly think I am too. I mean, I've had some uh, amazing experiences while I was doing my uh, master of divinity program. I did a chaplaincy course and I ended up on the 10th floor of the Toronto Western hospital, which is the floor my mother had died on dealing with a patient that had a similar prognosis that she did who left behind children and that the head nurse recognized me on the floor because she was a personal friend of my mother. And that experience was like an aha experience that I thought, of course, my mother didn't want to die. <laughs> but I didn't know that. Right. We hadn't been. And and so then I had a much deeper understanding of no mother would want to leave behind four children. It was a terrible loss. And. The family members, our, our larger family, didn't step up to the plate to help us out. But I think they didn't know how. Right? And um, so I, I, I think I had more compassion on other people. Uh, and, and perhaps like now with this new interest in trauma studies and the Old Testament and grief and sorrow, I think I understand what it's all about and the value of understanding biblical characters who have had difficult experiences, I think I, I get it because I know what it means. You mentioned gravitating towards literature that is of motherless daughters or motherless children. Are you referring to literature in the Bible or just in the world? No, I, I actually a therapist <laughs> directed me toward that literature, thinking it might be helpful for my own self understanding. So it's no, it's not, it's not an academic subject that I've pursued. Although, you know, 
often people say that scholars often research something that connects to them personally. And my whole journey in the last more than 20 years now has been recovering forgotten women interpreters whose stories have been lost. And that, and that connects pretty personally to, to who I am. And yeah, yeah it, that makes sense to me, but it wasn't purposeful. Be, I, I got on that journey because a student in my class said, can I do a paper on a woman interpreter? of the Bible before 1970. And I thought, I don't know any. And I didn't. Because through all my years of graduate school, and I often focused on history of interpretation, we studied no women, none, not at all. Right. So I had looked for women at, at Princeton. I had found a letter that Archibald wrote to young seminarians on hints for young men finding a wife. And it was find a woman who can do everything. So you're freed up to do ministry. <laughs> but I mean, you know, uh, there were references to their mothers and sisters and wives. And I know their wives were incredibly important. Like when Charles Hodge left a young wife and children to go to Germany to study for a year, that would have been pretty, you know, interesting for her to be alone there. But we don't have her journals. We just have the men's journals and they didn't reference those women very much. So yeah, so I think my own personal story and my life as a scholar has certainly been impacted by, you know, my educational formation as a scholar and all, but also my personal formation. Based on that last comment, and because we got together specifically to talk about her commentary on Ruth and Esther, I asked if that was one of the reasons these two books were paired together. Well, Ruth, I assume, had a mother, but she is absent from the text, and Esther was an orphan. Nope. Turns out, it was something the editors did. They paired two fairly short books about women together and found a female interpreter. Hmm. Sometimes the explanation is just simple. I asked if writing about these two books at the same time highlighted similar threads in both books, or if it simply highlighted how they were completely unique. Sure. And, and you read similar authors when you prepare. Mm -hmm. um, and I, when I was looking, I mean, I'm particularly interested as we you know, by then we had discovered hundreds of women's voices. And so do the same historical women write on Esther and Ruth? Yes, they do, because they're key women. So often the interpreters that I had found overlapped, but that's just because they're two important books on women in the Old Testament. And so historically, both those women functioned in the lives of many women as models, different kind of models, but courageous women, an outsider who becomes an insider and models what faith is all about for Israelites. And so, you know, her story was very important for others in that way. And then Esther, of course, is another very important woman in terms of her journey and life story and courage that empowered many women in their own lives to 
for such a time as this to risk it all. So they're both important books historically, probably in every age, because their stories were beloved by women, especially. I think women have always been drawn to the stories of women in scripture, both old and new, because they want, you ask, well, the Bible is mostly about men. What does it say about women? And how does what it says about women impact my life? Women have always asked that question. And so now that we are looking for and finding women throughout history who've commented on scripture, many of them allude to reference and sometimes do fuller commentaries on these books. That is something I noticed in reading through your commentary was how many women, and you were referencing women from time periods in my head, right? And this is all comes to how familiar you are with that particular context or time period and literature. I kept going, wait, there were women writing at that time? I didn't know. I had no idea. And it is so comforting to read and to, and to look at all your footnotes, you know, as a scholar, always mm -hmm. kind of looking down and looking at the footnotes and being like, oh, that was a woman from the Middle Ages who wrote that. That was right. someone from 300 who wrote that. And it was encouraging for me, not only the words you were saying about the book of Ruth, but the women you were quoting and what they were saying about Ruth. Right. No, that that is so exciting. I mean, it's, yeah. it continues to shock me and surprise me and, and think, wow, oh. because we're still, you know, we're still... Women still think they're firsts, right? Oh, I'm the first woman preacher or the first woman <laughs> to get a job at this church. Or I was the first woman to professor at Wycliffe College. And But then you find out you're not the first. Women have been doing this for hundreds of years, right? Women have been teaching Bible in North America since the late 19th century. Who knew, right? Who knew women taught preaching at some of the most conservative colleges like Wheaton, you know, in the 19th century. But then in the 20th century, they said, no, women have never been in those classes. Well, actually, they have been in those classes and they were teaching those classes and they wore, they won prizes for sermons. So, so we go round and round and round as women feel empowered and called and have agency. And then the next generation says, oh, sorry, Women can't speak and teach, you're out. <laughs> so the, it's a very sad history of women in some ways, but a wonderfully empowering one for me anyway, that says women have had often a different way of reading certain texts that have silenced them. And they haven't been able to stand on the shoulders of the women who've come before them but they figured out the same answers. So women figured out that like often because they've had a sense of God's call on their life to speak or preach or teach, they said, well, what does this mean then, this text about women not teaching and not speaking? And then they, they read it in the context of all of scripture and said, no, it doesn't mean women, all women should keep silent. And one of my favorite women, Harriet Livermore, 
says she goes back to the Old Testament because in in it says women should keep silent according to the law. And she's then she said, well, where in the Old Testament is there a law about women keeping silent? So she does a biblical theology of women in the Old Testament, and she said it's not there. In fact, women did all kinds of things: preaching, teaching, prophesying, and so. So you have this evidence, a law of a long history of women doing all these things that we that was silenced for us. And that makes me mad, actually. Right. It's like I was cheated. We were right. cheated by not having this history. Right. Yeah. I completely agree because we're doing each generation a disservice if we say, this is the first time this question has come up. You're the rebellious ones wanting right. to go against what the church has always believed or something. Right, right. Yeah. And I don't know if you've read Amanda Bankhausen's book, The Gospel According yes. to Eve, right? So yes. Amanda studied in Toronto at Wycliffe and has did a beautiful job of collecting the voices of women discussing Genesis 1 to 3 through history and showed how those texts have impacted every aspect of a woman's life. And that book's a game changer, I think. It's like, wow. So all women, you know, you daughters of Eve, you know, you should repent because of your foremother Eve. And that's not what most women thought. Yeah. Well, many women thought that because they, they were taught that. But there are a lot of counter voices through history that are really significant. And so what it does is call into question the version of history that says it's always been like this. Right? We just need to go back to the 19th century where women were the angels of the house, the priests of the home and in the private sphere. And that's how it should be. It's always been that way, but it hasn't been that way. That's a myth. What is very exciting is that Dr. Taylor co-wrote a book with Dr. Schroeder called Voices Long Silenced. Pre-order it now. It won't be released until mid-February, but when it comes out, we are going to talk about it here on the podcast. An amazing book, because even when people want to include historical female voices, they just don't always know where to go find them. So stay tuned. We will talk more about that project later. For now, we are here to talk about Ruth and Esther. Well, it does get us to really important biblical women and even challenging roles that they play uh, and how we understand their challenging roles. And you mentioned in your commentary that the book of Ruth, and this is something that drives me absolutely berserk about when I hear people teach Ruth, when people over-romanticize right. Ruth as a person. And you point that out in your commentary, and I wanted to put down the book and start clapping. <laughs> Just, oh. I was like, please, yes. So, And one of the things you do is you really point out that there are challenging aspects to this book. So we have Naomi, who has a pretty significant role in this book, and the lament that is in her life. And we have Ruth and abuse or violence against women, even with Ruth. So do you mind speaking to those challenging aspects that are in the book that we miss when we over-romanticize it? Right. Yes. I mean, Naomi is the major character in the book. The book begins with 
her losses, right? She loses husband, sons, uh, and, and even her voice. She loses her name at the beginning, right? And so she's going through deep grief and what we know about loss and, uh, and grief uh, helps us understand her character. Other people have interpreted her silence. You know, after Ruth says, I'm gonna go with you, I'm gonna follow you, I'll die where you die. There, and she makes that covenant with her, mm-hmm. there's silence. And um, there's a classic art article I've talked about it that says, is Naomi a scold? Is she just kind of a bitter old woman? But I think she's she's a woman who who's in deep grief, right? She's turned inward. And that makes sense. And it takes her a very long time as you, uh, in terms of character development within the book. But by the end of the book, and I love the role of, and you could even talk about them as real characters in the book, the women of Bethlehem. They talk at the beginning, they're with they probably have a, quite a significant background role in the book. And then at the end of the book, they say to Naomi, Ruth is more valuable to you than seven sons. So sons in the ancient world were the most valuable thing you could have. The Persian king gave a prize to the man who had the most sons every year, right? But I think what they're saying there is, Naomi, you still don't value Ruth enough, right? She She's more valuable to you. And this is a very countercultural moment in the book, right? It's saying what the culture says is important is not. Topsy-turvy Ruth, the outsider, the Moabite woman, hmm. is very important in your life. So I think you, I love a study of Naomi's character because of the transitions in her life as she moves from, a, you know, deep bitterness, call me Mara, you know, I'm bitter, I'm, you know, I I have no hope, God's hand is heavy upon me. And, and then at the end, you know, the baby is in her arms, and, and she has hope, it's the movement in the book from emptiness to fullness, and we see that in Naomi's life. And so now that we understand stages of grief and trauma, we understand Naomi a lot better. And, and she she needs hope. Everyone needs hope. And uh, and she's also, a conf- you know, what is she doing when she says to Ruth, go to the threshing floor at night? Yeah. I was going to ask about that. <laughs> a very dangerous thing. Ruth is a Moabite, which the narrator keeps saying, Ruth, the Moabite, Ruth, the Moabite. And in Ellen Davis's uh, translation of uh, of the book of Ruth, which she includes the woodcuts on Ruth. The artist Parker who does the woodcuts has Ruth with a tattoo on her forehead that that reflects the narrator's repetition of Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. We know she's a Moabite. Why are you saying it? Because it's saying she's different. She's not one of us. She's an outsider. So why is she sending Ruth in that? Because Moabite women, if you do a word study of Moabite women, Moabite women in the Bible are sexually attractive and enticing of Israelite men. They get in trouble when they're with and Moabite women, right? So she's a, it's a perfect scenario. A Moabite woman at night on the threshing floor when everybody's drinking and partying, what 
something bad is going to happen here. So what is she doing and setting her up like that? But I think you have two desperate women at that point in the book. It's the end of the harvest. Boaz has not made any moves, right? He has not stepped up to the plate to redeem the women. And and so women who are in a culture, and it's a a hierarchical, um, Carol Myers talks about the word patriarchy not being adequate, but heterarchy. There's multiple hierarchies going on, not just male over female, but older women having control over younger women and, you know, insiders, outsiders, and so on. So it's a dangerous ask, but it's an act of desperation. Yeah. It's the end of harvest. Harvest being a glean, being gleaners has worked, but now they need a permanent solution, which was her prayer at the beginning to go like, go back to your mother's houses where that you will, you know, being in another arranged marriage, but that hasn't worked. So Naomi is doing what she can to make it happen. Because when Ruth is married, Naomi is also cared for. Right. So it it is, uh, um, I think, as we understand, desperation. Uh, what does a, a woman, a marginalized woman do? It's an act. They're bold. They're, they, you have to do what you you have to do to survive. And that's what that scene is all about. It's survival. He's not asking you to marry him. You need to do it. Yeah. Right. So I appreciate that point of view so much in pointing out marginalized women and the, the forceful way, the, um, the way that they really fight for survival is a necessary layer, I think, for us to understand a scene that is full of sexual innuendo, that that scene on the threshing floor. And again, other commentators and pastors and preachers and Bible studies, they will really zoom in on and spend all their time looking at the sexual innuendos and then kind of playing out Ruth as a sexual being and then turn it into a sexual ethic based on that. Uh, and I, I think it's reading a text in a very flat way. I think, and maybe I'll just ask you, what is the better way to be looking at the, at that, the fullness of that scene without misinterpreting the text in a misleading way, maybe? So I think the text has been and continues to be read in different ways, right? The innuendos are there. It's, it's a, text it, it's filled with sexual tension and emotion and that's intentional the narrator wants you to ask the question what went on on the threshing floor right but there's and there's no answer in that chapter it's not clear if there's suggestions but it's not clear but it is clear in the next chapter that boaz married ruth he slept with her and she became pregnant so they know how to say those things, right? And so I love, when I was doing the research, I found a 19th century uh, Scottish theologian who just said, like, it's just too mysterious to even talk about, right? And I kind of think that's what, you know, you just have to, you just have to sit with it. So I, you know, I teach intro to Old Testament every year. And when we get to Ruth, 
I like to have a debate in the class, right? Did they have sex on the threshing floor? And it's, it's, some people say yes, some people say no, right? And, um, you know, and co some commentary writers say yes, and some say no. So I, what was shocking to me, though, was to find the views that the poem of Ephraim the Syrian in who's, you know, I think, fourth century, fifth century, um, who said, of course, they had sex on the threshing floor. And I thought, what? <laughs> like, this is such an old view uh, of, of what went on. But but he like he got a lot right because G Ruth comes up in the genealogy of Jesus, as do other women who have kind of a questionable sexual history like Tamar. Right. And he puts all those women's stories together and he says they were all called of God and they saw in the loins of the men, the redeemer. And you think what? <laughs> so he essentially says Ruth saw in Boaz the Messiah and knew this was the right thing to do and so had sex on the threshing floor. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like I was so shocked to, to read that as an ancient uh, Christian reading of the text. So it's not just a modern reading. There is a long history of that, um, but that's not the position I would hold, right? That, so I, I think, I think uh, there's tension, but because the narrator is so careful throughout the four beautifully shaped literary, like it's a genius, put the book together in terms of its shaping and playfulness and literary um, patterns, uh, Boaz and Ruth are equally matched in terms of character, right? Mm -hmm. They're Hesed. They're uh, they have covenant faithfulness. They're they're um, you know be above the law. You know they're models for how an Israelite should live. Mm -hmm. And so, in terms of their character, Boaz at the end of chapter three says, "You know, I'm going to do what you say," which is a man doing following the plans of a woman of women, right? I'm going to do what you say. You need to trust me now, right? It's going to be a public event at the gate. And marriage was not a decision two people made on their own. It's a, it's a community decision, as it is in chapter four. And so that, that is more of what I think we see marriage in Bethlehem, which was a small town, probably 250 people. Everybody knew everyone. And so... To bring in an outsider, a Moabite woman, and for this wonderful, senior, older, prestigious Bethlehemite to marry this outsider, which was really quite against the law in some ways, they needed the community support, and they got that. And I think that's where the marriage took place. Mm -hmm. So that's my that's my personal view on it. But, you know, I, I totally get the fact that other people will say something different, but those people who read Ruth as this wonderful romance and a manual for Christian dating, they don't talk about chapter three, right? You don't, <laughs> they don't do that. What does you that mean? You conveniently skip over that. <laughs> yeah, they say, well, you know, it's a, Boaz is an ideal son-in-law, like he treats his mother-in-law so well. And I'm thinking, this is not what the book is all about. So we have to read the book of Ruth in its ancient context.
right? And you misread it all the way through if you talk about it in terms of a modern Western romance between two individuals. That's not what it's about. Right. I mean, Boaz might have been married to someone else. And he was an older Israelite man, a wealthy man. Ruth could have been becoming a second wife. Was did did they love each other? Chapter two has some tease of romance, right? Boaz seems to be interested in this woman, right? And and he does all these countercultural things. He asks her, he serves her, he cares for her, right? Um, he looks out for her, he's generous. So all these things that, you know, again, the narrator is drawing you in, is something going to happen? And nothing happens and nothing happens. So then the women must do something to make it happen. And he's flattered. He said, well, you should have gone after younger women. So he, you know, he doesn't expect this in many ways. Yeah. So... Yeah, I love the story of Ruth. I mean, I find it life-giving and empowering, and it shows women. Um, and it, and when you read how global women are interpreting the book of Ruth, they do find it empowering. As marginalized women, you know, you you do need to do exceptional things sometimes to make things happen, and she models that for them. Another story that is often over-romanticized is the story of Esther. We will get to that next week. Thanks for sitting with us around the podcast table. And a very special thanks goes to David and Julie Longman and Christine So, who are all a part of my Patreon team and are the ones responsible for making Context Matter sustainable. Thank you for being so amazing. I produced this episode, Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix, and Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. I look forward to our conversations next week. Until then, be safe and take care of each other and stay curious about the world around you. 